Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us are... Carl and Laura Gallagher. He is the author of Torch Ship from Kelthaven Press, and she is the audiobook reader for Torch Ship from Kelthaven Press. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, this is uh... this is excellent. So we were late to recording today because some man in this house could not extricate <laughs> himself from reading the book. Yeah, I had my head in the Kindle. You know, it, I, I kept it, turning pages, and uh, I got all the way up to uh, right about where they had landed on a planet called Savannah with a shipload full of uh, cat food. And <laughs> kitty chow for the lions. You guys there? <laughs> They're giggling. Are you there? They're giggling. Yeah. We are. We know you're there. We can hear you breathing. <laughs> so the first... We're a good one. I'm suddenly realizing that maybe I've sent him to pick up cat food on the way home one time too many. <laughs> so the um, the first thing I noticed about the book, apart from the fact that I could not seem to put it down, uh, was how real it all felt. The characters felt just like people I have I have either met or would want to meet. Uh, some of them scary, you know, <laughs> and, and things go right and things go wrong, but it's life and the ship, the whole environment aboard the ship feels alive and, and very, very solidly grounded. Well, it is hard science with rivets, isn't it? I, and I love that. That's, I, the, uh, I, you know, it's got that E.E. E. Doc Smith feel to it, you know. Ooh, now that's a compliment. Yeah. So how, long did it take you to get from, hey, I want to write a science fiction book, to having this thing finished and and between a pair of book covers? Well, wanting to write a story is something I've had for a long time. I did some short stories all the way back in high school, but you know, being a pro writer is a hard business, especially in the traditional publishing style. And so... I had held off and done other stuff um, like role, doing role-playing games to use to let out my storytelling urges, and then I saw how the internet was taking off and Kindle and everything, 
and realized I no longer had to be afraid of writing a, a novel and having it sit in a trunk for 10 or 20 years. You know, I could uh, actually just put it up on Amazon and let anybody interested uh, download it and uh, see if they like it. So once that hit for me, um, I wound up sitting down in January of 2013 and writing a story, came up, spent pretty much all of 2013 coming up with a rough draft, um, then editing, adding uh, some more subplots and stuff. So about the middle of 2014, I had a good solid draft, which I sent out to a publisher and it got bounced which is the natural fate of first novels. Sure. And so I went looked at it, found a couple of ways to, uh, to tweak it, talked to an artist friend of mine from local science fiction conventions about doing a cover, and mm -hmm. went ahead and put it up on Amazon as an independent. And so, you know, that uh, has seemed to uh, go pretty well so far. I love the cover art. You sent us cover art in Skype, and uh, I love the cover art. It's brilliant. And, and so many independent authors sort of skimp on this, and not they don't understand the importance of of uh, having great cover art for their book. You know, a, 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 a bad book won't be helped by cover art, but a good book will be helped tremendously by good cover art. There's people on a planetary surface and the torch ship. And it's a very enticing title, first of all. It's, I mean, it's, it's just an action word, you know, torch. <laughs> Which, <laughs> there, there's a scene in it uh, uh, where that's actually put to very solid use. Um, no, the ship has no weapons, except... It is a weapon. It is a weapon. It's the ship's drive, and... You gotta watch where you land. A lot of people, I think, can miss that kind of thing. But even a car is a weapon. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get to the physics of what weapons are. I was reading another story recently that the difference between how a military person thinks of a weapon and how a scientist will think of it are different. In what way? That a scientist will get down to the F equals M A. If I can throw something at that hard enough, it may not look like a weapon, but it will act as one. Mm-hmm. And well, in the military, those all tend to come, come under the category of improvised weapons, which uh, tends to be informally trained rather than you know being part of the official list. But it uh, does come in very useful. In my military experience, this was the sort of thing that would get discussed on the off hours as something you really ought to know that is not part of the training list. And uh, you get a good vision on the book cover of what it looks like to have the ship coming down on a location, which uh, gives you an idea of the power of the drive. And uh, that, that book cover wasn't wasn't my idea. I'd had a sketch which I sent to uh, Stephanie Fulce, the cover artist, and uh, I wanted to have something that wasn't a cover I see far too often in the uh, in the space opera and hard science fiction categories, which is you have this generic science fiction spaceship against a image from the Hubble telescope of some nebula, mm -hmm. and, and go through the bestseller lists and see dozens of those. 
So I wanted to have something that stood out but was still very much a action in space cover, and I discussed that with Stephanie, and she came up with the cover idea after reading the book and um, just did a wonderful, wonderful job and uh, tremendously undercharged me uh, because we've been friends for a long time, and so you know, I made a point of jacking up her rate for the next book. Well, she did a beautiful job. Is that the lead character, Michigan, on the cover? Yes. I thought it might be. Well, and the ship looks much like the sketches in the book and the descriptions. But that is informed by by your uh, professional work, isn't it? She said, leading into the other half of the discussion on... Yes, I am by profession a rocket scientist. Um, I've got my engineering degree at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and got to to work a bit on rocket stuff there with some classmates and went on to operate satellites for the Air Force, design satellites for uh, various contractors, and had a job at one point even designing a commercial uh, rocket launcher for a startup company brand new not one of the uh, standard contractors. So I've gotten to do an interesting variety of rocket science. And uh, these days I do fighter planes because when you have kids, you have to follow the money. Uh It does give me a chance to bring out the rocket science experience and say, okay, if you have the technology that lets you do interstellar travel, what's the ship really going to look like? You know, if you don't have magic anti-gravity devices, if you don't have a work drive, what kind of what is your ship going to look like? How is it going to behave? And so I drew on that and uh, got sketches, and uh, that's been pretty well received by some of the uh, more technical among my my fans. Um, you know the uh, the the uh, webmaster of the Atomic Rockets site. Atomic Rockets is this marvelous, marvelous reference for anyone interested in uh, rocketry or space travel. And uh, he granted it the seal of approval because I had gotten my numbers right. And uh, several of the folks who uh, have enjoyed it are ones that I've worked with professionally in the rocket business. Wow. Yeah, I suspected you might have some uh, professional background in in, uh, aerospace technology from the description of the ship. I mean, that is... the, The descriptions of the ship, I mean... For the, for the listeners, there are no big, ugly blocks of exposition in this book. It's all woven into the action. It's all woven into the dialogue. And uh, that means that the book has an excellent pacing. It just never stops moving, which is uh, kind of exciting, really. I mean, you just get swept up in it as it barrels along. But uh, If the ship isn't moving, the people are. Yeah, and but the ship just feels so real. It's like you know every bolt, every square inch of that ship, of the uh, uh, what's it? The ship is called the fives fives full full fives fives full. Fives full. Fives full. Which is a poker hand, but the captain is not a poker player. He won it from some other guy who was a poker player. Or bought it from some guy who was not a bad poker player, apparently. Yeah, I, I love I love the uh, the description of how the captain got the ship. 
you know, and, and the description of, of uh, even the history of it. Uh, the previous owner had uh, had tried to make it a luxury ship for bored aristocrats and uh, lost lost all of his clientele when he when the house kept winning too much of their money and they got hip to it and then he went out of business and had to s- get rid of the ship so so uh yeah i mean it's just it's a it's a ship I would want to go visit. You know? I don't know, would you? Wind up sitting in an asteroid belt? Sucking or? vacuum? I don't know. Mm, <laughs> num 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 num. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean well, it's really meant as as a cruise ship. I mean it can do do that. It's willing to tackle any job, but it's a working ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more along the lines of a modern container ship. And there are people who will, you know, go rent a cabin and uh, travel, you know, from, uh, you know, one uh, one continent to another along with, you know, 10,000 metal boxes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they're there, they're there to work, not to uh, enjoy themselves. So it's more of um, merchant marines, if anything. Well, it's an independent sure. ship, though, isn't it? It's not part of a fleet. No, it's it's a uh, it's a fairly classic tramp freighter, which is an old trope in uh, mm-hmm. science fiction, and has really somewhat gone away in the modern world just because you know communications are so good that you know you can predict exactly what cargo should be picked up at what port at what time, and you know a tramp freighter can't compete with that, so they've mostly gone out of business. But you go back to the 1930s. And there would be guys showing up in in Shanghai, offloading the cargo, and then looking around to see, you know, what can we pick up to take back to North America. Mm-hmm. Interstellar. Switching that tradition. Yeah, interstellar distances. It's a little hard to do that predicting thing. Now the uh, the political universe of Torch Ship is quite interesting. It's you've got this. Uh, You've got the AIs, you've got the uh, the terraformers, and you've got the uh, the disconnect, which are um, each one has its own agenda, and um, not all of them are happy being around each other. So it's it's I think that's a great backdrop for the story. It, it just sets up. All kinds of potential story conflicts just right out of the box. I kind of like the idea of people predicting that you're working out their courses with a slipstick. <laughs> I can still use a slide rule. Well, and that was that's that was one of the things that I noted. You know, in uh, Doc Smith's Lensman series, all of the flight computations were done with slide rules. And in Heinlein, that's true. Slipstick Libby. Yeah. Remember him. Mm-hmm. Some of this is very much, you know, referencing those old Doc Smith and Heinlein stories. Torchship is a term I picked up from Heinlein, and this is very much trying to honor those old stories like Starman Jones. And having decided that, yeah, I want to have these folks using a slide rule, there's the question of what possible justification can you have Mm-hmm. For a slide rule, you know, two centuries in the future, and well, the answer is security. It is the the computational gadget that cannot carry viruses. 
unless you sneeze on it. <laughs> Common cold is the only virus that a slide rule can carry. Yeah, that actually when... that actually comes up in the story too. <laughs> I remember uh, that one encounter uh, uh, Mitchy has with uh, somebody who wants to talk to her in a at a dance club and gets warned off by that. I'm I'm sorry, Laura. You were going to say something. I, I was saying. I remember one of Carl's reviews was complaining that well, he didn't think you could run a starship with a, a slip sticker. Carl, you want to comment on that? Or? Well, you know, I can pretty much say that I could get from here to Jupiter with a slide rule. And yes, NASA uses massive computers, but NASA doesn't have a torch ship. They're trying to get there with, you know, only a quarter drop of fuel left over, and that means they need massive precision. A, a torch ship can go from here to Jupiter on a tenth of its fuel tank, and if that's the case, you know, it doesn't matter if your course is a few percent off when you start out. You can just, you know, change course later and uh, get there because it's a big planet. You can't miss it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty pretty easy to spot that sucker against the black of night. Even from here? Yeah. Shooting uh, <coughs> the gentleman in the virus, and I think... The one social group you had mentioned is the fusion, and the fusion and the disconnect, mm. the tension between those two, I think, are key. Mm-hmm. And the need to have a ship that is low enough tech that it can travel between the two. Yeah, pretty much the uh, you know the disconnected worlds don't have the paranoid regulations that the fusion does. So anything with, you know, disconnected worlds technology is just forbidden from the fusion worlds. And so you have to have these low-tech ships crossing the border for security reasons. I remember one scene on uh, one of the fusion worlds, and I don't remember the name of the planet, uh, but uh, a fellow had gotten caught cheating uh, at a uh, a popular um, multiplayer online game, and then had tried to hide the fact that he was using an illegal processor uh, to to boost his game, and that was his crime. And for that, he was put to death. There's been that, times that I've wanted shock. to do that. Come on, you <laughs> know you've thought about it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but that was a shock. That was very. That was a, one of those illustrative moments. Well, it was supposed to be. Illustrative and brutal. Mm. It's traumatized some of the readers. Um, there is one guy who is calling the whole fusion a dystopia because of that one incident. But really, it wasn't the crime; it was the cover-up that got him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, true. Yeah. That's true. This so- off-network computer could have held computer viruses. It could have held an an artificial intelligence um, breeding something more powerful. And that's something those people are truly terrified of. I mean, you you look at how our current uh, network is today. I mean, right now, the computers that we're talking on could have some... Excuse me, we can hear you typing. Sorry, stop. (laughs) Okay, can you roll that back a few sentences there? So, as it... So, it was uh, the cover... The cover-up, which is the problem, because this off-network computer 
could have been hiding a computer virus or an artificial intelligence plotting who's no, who knows what against humanity. And that's something these people are terrified of. I mean, you look at the computers that we're using for this conversation, there could be malware on them that could hijack them for a botnet to do a uh, denial of service attack against, you know, who knows who. Um, and that's perfectly legal. You know, we, we're letting our computers get hijacked to harm somebody else, and we have no liability for that. And in the fusion, that would be considered you know, a major crime that you are so careless with your security that your computing equipment is being used as a weapon against other people. You know, so there's a much there's a, a high standard of personal responsibility for that kind of systems. Uh, essentially, a uh, letting malware on your computer is viewed the same way as leaving a gun in a kindergarten classroom. It's this. Mm-hmm. Menace, you have to keep it secure. Well, considering what they've been through, that's that's what they fear. And we don't have that worry. On the other hand, we will outlaw growing a weed in your backyard for recreational purposes, which would baffle the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. <sighs> We've had a long day. We understand. Well, what would you like to bring up next while we're on a little break here? Well, okay, I'm getting my candy back to me. Um, it's been a very interesting experience for me. You describe me as the audiobook narrator. I'm surprised how much more my role has been than I originally expected. When Carl started working on the book, I was pleased, I was excited for him, and a little wistful, because I'm not sitting here overwhelming with plots, so I thought I wouldn't have any part in this. Well, at least I could be his proofreader. Mm-hmm. As it's gone on, I feel almost as if all these years I've spent in, in the guts of all this really good science fiction was preparing me for this, because I've ended up being his proofreader, his developmental editor, his line editor, and the person that will occasionally throw something at him. <laughs> editor um, is not a dirty questions. word. Yeah, so you've been you've I was going to ask about that. You know, the one of the great drawbacks of self-publishing uh is that many uh, self-published authors do not invest in an editor. And an editor, uh, and more than a proofreader, an editor is somebody who will tell you, I'm sorry, this is dragging, or I'm, you know, this makes no sense, or you have, uh, you know, wouldn't it be better if you tried this? Or what's this character's motivation? Or do you need this story arc? This, you know, these kinds of hard questions. And it sounds like, Laura, you served that role. I have. And I have been reading other indie authors, and I occasionally just want to send them a letter saying, I love your story, get an editor. Um, some of it is I'm enough of a proofreader that I'll cringe and pop out of a story when they've used the wrong spelling of a word or homonym or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, I will read through Carl's work. I will say, you need to unpack this more. 
I will say, look, I've got a lot of science background and a good bit of military background for someone that was not military, and I had to have you explain this to me. That means a lot of your readers are not going to follow you. Open this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, I've heard you talk about this enough that I understand what's going on with this character emotionally, but you're not showing it. Your readers need to see that. And, and that sort of discussions. And yes, when he handed me the, the first completed draft of Torchship, I got to the ending. I picked up my companion cube plushie and threw it at him. <laughs> I said, you're not ending that there. This it needs bounced, a chapter. and she threw it again, and it bounced again, and she <laughs> threw it again. and uh, Until you said you would write that extra chapter that needed to be there. Excellent. And I did. <laughs> That's excellent. See, the companion cube. Yes. It's your friend. <laughs> it was a plushy one, but... Um, and I've just found that I've become an editor, and I'd never expected that. And I see places where there's something missing in the structure and I can feel myself drawing on all the great authors I've read and spent so much time rereading and it'll tell me, you need something here that parallels this earlier thing. Mm-hmm. This this structure needs to balance and I didn't know I had that knowledge. That's superb. It's fascinating growth. Yeah. And of course, I hadn't expected to have a second career as an audiobook narrator come up. Uh, when Carl was working on the book, and it was still this very far off, I don't know if this will ever be published thing, I half-jokingly said, well, I'll, I'll do your audiobook for you someday if you want. And he took me up on it. Mm-hmm. Sure so I'm looking at your uh, your logo here on uh, on our Skype connection. It says Sleepy Cat Audiobooks. Uh, that just got completed for me. Great art- artist Michael Van Slyke just did that up for me. I love it. It's beautiful. So I take it you have more audiobooks, uh, either in production or that you have produced. I have a second audiobook in production right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book called The Iron in the Loom, which is a historical novel in 12th century Italy. Ooh. Small press, paper angel press. Um, I uh, you know, did Carl's book, and to some extent there was so much learning curve I had to climb. Mm-hmm. Learn how to do an audiobook to learn how to do all the editing. Um, I didn't want to go through all that and then only record his books. Mm-hmm. And we have this lovely system set up, ACX, where audiobook narrators and authors that want to get a book done can find each other. And mm-hmm. there are, are uh, processes to go through and submit auditions. And I'm tremendously privileged. I'm not doing this to make sure I make the rent next month. Mm-hmm. So she can, you know, look at a book, read the sample script, roll my eyes, go, no, I don't think so. No, <laughs> I really don't want to read, you know, another biography about the Kardashians. No, thanks. <laughs> oh, I'd gosh. rather have a book about the Kardashians. That, that would be, you know, that would be Little Deep Space Nine. That'd be good. Yes. I, I, I do that. Um but I found a project that looked interesting and submitted to it. And so I'm currently going through and working on that book. Uh, we went ahead and upgraded my equipment. Mm-hmm. First, the book for a torch ship was done with really bad equipment. And um, one of the things you don't realize, or at least I didn't, I'm sure you do, is how much more time editing takes than recording. Um. They- 
it it can it can um an hour uh, of audiobook typically takes five to six hours of work to produce hmm usually uh usually when we record one of our event horizon shows i can get the show edited in about 15 minutes 20 on the outside that's not the same but it's not always yeah it's not the same and uh uh, you know, it's not always like that. I've, I've, we've, we've had shows where I've spent five hours editing a, a forty-minute show. But that's, well, between climbing the learning curve and mm-hmm. what more equipment I had, I had to spend a lot of time making up for that. Mm-hmm. I probably spent like ten hours. Per <laughs> hour. Well, yeah, learning curve, learning curve matters. You mentioned teaching myself sound editing. Oh yeah, scratch. you mentioned Paper Angel Press. And that it's it is that's a small small world because uh, I know Lorraine Hudson, uh, who is with an editor with Paper Angel Press, and she was formerly with Hunt Press, who was the publishing company that published Robert Souter's um, Brass Jack series, and he's oh. already been on the Event Horizon. We had him on last year, so it's a uh, this is. Interesting. This is getting to be sort of a small little cadre of uh, of uh, friends and publishers and writers. I, I was pleased to be working with a small press, and I'm looking forward to doing more books, hopefully interesting projects, mm-hmm. hopefully science fiction as well. But I want it to be books that I can recommend a book I recorded to someone else and feel confident that I'm recording a good, recommending a good book to them. That I won't regret mm-hmm. saying you should listen to this. Well, Paper Angel Press is—they're uh, a fairly new publishing company, but they are—they are rising quickly, and uh, they have some excellent, excellent people working for them. So, um, yeah, it's—I'm—I am gratified that you are uh, doing a project with them, and—and and I'm, <laughs> you know, pleasantly surprised. So. Um, Character. Let's talk character development. You thought it was Schwarzenegger at first until I made yes, you. Yes, Schwarzenegger. Read. I was just reading too fast. <laughs> Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. I'm getting into the Schwarzenegger voice. <laughs> Come with it's... me if you want to live. <laughs> sorry. That would be no. <laughs> yeah, no go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> name of a uh, sergeant I served with in the Air Force, and it just struck me as an interesting enough sounding name that it left out uh, on me as, you know, kind of, this would be a dependable person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's, and it stands out from all the Chinese names that are in it. <laughs> yeah, I loved the description of uh, Michigan. It, is it, the character's name is Michigan Long, is it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I just—it's uh, funny because she's her her last name is long, but she's the shortest person on the ship. It's like Little John. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Curly Joe. Yeah. Julius Caesar. But uh, I really liked uh, just following along with the characters and getting inside their heads. You never had a first-person omniscient uh, voice, but. Uh, Boy, we sure learn a lot about uh, Mitchius as we go along. And it's fun to learn about her as we go. And did you struggle with character development at first? 
how much time did you spend doing your character backstories? There wasn't a whole lot of work up front except for Michigan. Um, this is where I will do a bit of confession that I have actually recycled some stuff into Torchship. Uh, I did a lot of game mastering, role-playing games, and I would do pickup games at conventions. And so to make it easier, I would have my set of adventures and I would have some pre-generated characters that people could play. And so most of the crew is actually taken from those role-playing characters. So I can't even say where all of the names came from because that was so far back in time, Mm -hmm. a decade or more for some of them, that I had come up with that. And so I don't, you know, I don't remember where the name Michigan Long came from. Um, the the role playing character of Michigan Long actually changed quite a bit uh, for the story. Uh, she has a much more involved backstory now, which is doled out very incrementally over the course mm-hmm. of the story. And uh, there's eventually a big reveal, which you. Know, you can probably piece together the clues over the course of the story um, if you have the proper background yourself to recognize some of the clues. I know they're too subtle for for a lot of folks, but um, you know that, look- uh, that kind of preserves the reveal for a lot of folks. I'm looking forward to that reveal. I, at the rate I'm going, I'll probably finish the book either tonight or tomorrow. <laughs> it's a good fast read. I mean, it's your writing style is very, uh, very fluid and smooth. It's open in the same way that uh, 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 Robert Heinlein's style was open. You know, in the same way that uh, Doc Smith's style was. And uh, I'm really enjoying the book. Have you read any David Weber? No, I don't think so. Oh, we got to fix that. Yeah, David Weber, um, um, the author of Honor Harrington stuff. I think I, I think I read like the third book he wrote, but it was. It's got to be confusing. To yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. But I was. I think I was like seventeen. <laughs> well, I love Weber, but one of the things I've enjoyed about Carl's work is that he doesn't do the info dumps in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's another artifact of people who who bring their gaming background into their writing. Yeah, and first novelitis definitely. It, 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 that's usually an artifact of that. But in not yeah, any, that never happens. <coughs> Joker's wild. <coughs> yeah, yeah well, but I try to get the info in there. And one part that I'm proudest of is that there was a scene where I wanted to explain how the torch drive of the ship worked, and so I made that an action scene from the viewpoint of this inanimate object that is being destroyed by running it through the engine. And so you get a whole bunch of technical information about how this thing actually works. But on the surface, it is, you know, the action of destroying this information uh, to keep anyone from finding out about it. And so I'm trying, so I'm managing to accomplish a couple of goals at once there. That, I noticed that that was that was a very very clever way of exp- of doing that and getting us a feel for how the whole thing operates. And uh, the paragraph to read out loud, I'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll bet. <laughs> um, 
I'm sorry. One of the things that really struck me about the characterization and has kept me very involved with the series and eager to be an editor and proofreader and help with it has been the characterization of Nietzsche. There's a lot of science fiction novels out there with strong female characters, but many of them read like a male character with boobs strapped to her. You know, you've got someone yeah. that's, you know, five, ten or six feet and she's this, you know, karate genius and can completely, you know, wipe the walls with you and she's strong and powerful and she gets places by being strong in a man's way. Mm-hmm. Mitchie is small and, you know, she's no slouch, but she's not going to get anywhere by trying to imitate what a six foot man will do. She has different ways to be strong and different ways to achieve her goals that are very much coming from a feminine side. And I enjoyed that so much. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that uh, as well as I was reading. Um, she's definitely got her own way of doing things. Yeah, sneaky. Uh, yep, sneaky and deceptive at times. Uh, she's definitely good at keeping secrets. And she obviously has some of her own. Um, and it's it was really kind of an eye-opener. Uh, and, and the other uh, interesting character was uh, the uh, in one of the earlier chapters, uh, uh, earlier parts of the book, um, one of the spectator passengers, a girl named Bobby, who... Uh, went through some hardships and uh, there is a very poignant scene uh, where the crew of the uh, of the uh, Fives Full where the crew of the Fives Full uh, is sharing in her anguish and that actually that caused some tears to well up I mean, that was that was a really strong emotional moment. And when I felt that, that's when I knew that I cared about what happened to these characters. And, you know, it was um, uh, a lot of books. You read them and you just can't wait for the seven people in this ship to just get killed. You know, (laughs) who gives a flying fig? (laughs) What happens to them? And, and that was the moment when I knew I cared about those characters deeply enough to feel that. There were some things that I actively wanted to avoid in this book. And you mentioned, you know, the strong female character. There's a TV trope page, Waif Fu, which is, you know, their description for the martial art that allows a 90 pound girl to beat up someone three times her size. <laughs> and, no, no one in my book has the power of, of waifu. Um, if I have a book that has that, you know, it will require some magical justification. And another thing is the red shirt. And in the scene you were describing, you know, the, the guy that, you know, they were mourning. I mean, he was very much a classic red shirt in the TV trope sense. He was someone whose job it was to go out and die for someone else's safety. And there are so many stories where you have all these red shirts and they get knocked down like bowling pins and nobody bats an eye. Um, but these are people. And even if they're a minor character in the story, somebody cares about them. 
and I didn't want to have you know them you know ignore all those deaths I mean not not that there's a funeral for every single time someone dies in the story uh, as you will discover later mm-hmm. on yeah it was um, that was that was one of the uh, one of the my favorite scenes of the book that I've read so far I've only read 37% according to this Kindle <laughs> but um, I'm going to read the rest of it but the um, uh, the character development is laced together tightly enough that it feels like it has the same feel for me as the the ship itself. It's all everything's in place. Everything connects. Everything is very precisely laced together. And uh, boy, you can sure feel that as you read along. It's really something. Well, thank you. I've tried. I've bounced around a bit uh, in the military, um, in science fiction fandom, in you know, be working for large corporations and uh, SCA, you know, the SCA, and met a whole bunch of different kinds of people. And I try and draw on it to get the kind of people that would be doing this kind of work. You know, you're not going to find academics man- manning a tramp freighter. I want to portray the kind of people who do that sort of work. So where are you going to be next? Uh, you are taking, I, I take it you do the convention circuits uh, with the book? At least locally? Well, I haven't gone uh, very far afield. Uh, my next convention is SoonerCon in Oklahoma at the end of June. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I've been to before, and it is a fun convention. And this year they have David Weber, who we've been discussing earlier. Oh, so uh-huh. the, the fan club will be out in force, and I will be there with uh, my uniform as well, because you know, gotta gotta show my part of the flag. <laughs> flag is a member of the uh, the fan club. Fan in um, black, huh? <laughs> yes, I will. Um, you know, for Susan, who who will get the reference, I will be there in day jacket and beret. Right. And okay. There are fancier uniforms, but I am not up to that level of cosplay yet. And you'll be on panels there. We just—I don't think we know which ones yet. I will be a panelist at SoonerCon. They haven't uh, released the schedule yet. I'm probably not going to uh, do that many because I'm also in uh, attending the writers' workshop, which takes up a good chunk of the con. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, and the uh, the convention after that will be uh, FenCon here in DFW in mm-hmm. September. And by FenCon, I also uh, plan to have the second book out, Torchship Pilot, which uh, will have more adventures of Michigan and company. And will also uh, feature an appearance by Bobby, who you liked. Okay, good. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was going to ask about uh, what the next book was going to be like, uh, and uh, I mean the the universe you have created is just too good to waste on on not writing more books, and I'm very at yeah. ease. Authors that write a great universe and then blow it up at the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, I read books like that. I'm like, why did you do that? 
I, I know, really hope this. that the audiobook will follow the second book much more quickly this time, now that I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm sure it will. And, and I'm sure the uh, the second book uh, will be... Uh, Will, will be written much more quickly as well for, uh, for the same reason, you know, because Carl, I'm sure you have a much better handle on your characters and your, your universe now that you don't have to do quite as much universe building. It should be a lot easier to, to turn around the, the next book. Well, possibly it, it should be. Um, in practice, it took me about the same amount of time to write the second book. <laughs> I have a draft now that is out to uh, beta readers for feedback. Mm-hmm. So it's in the stage. And I've started on the third book, uh, which is going slower than the second one, uh, partly because the thing about trilogies is the first book in a trilogy asks questions, and the third book in the trilogy has to answer the questions. And good answers are a lot harder than good questions. Mm. So... I am working on that and uh, trying to trying to avoid some of the uh, the infamous traps for uh, science fiction writers because you know I I do want to stick the landing. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, to the, like the uh, the SpaceX <laughs> on that platform in the ocean. Oh my God! What fantastic video that was. <laughs> Drifting, drifting off, uh, drifting off topic a bit there. Sorry. Um, the title of the second book is Torchship Pilot. Torchship Pilot. Oh, that sounds in that. Obviously, Michi is right in the center of that one. I look presumably <laughs> maybe there's <laughs> maybe, another one. Maybe there's another one. You don't know yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing that one as well. And uh, I, it may surprise a few readers. Anyone that's you know expecting. It to be a retread will be disappointed because Carl keeps developing things. Uh, the, the, it's like the differences between the old style uh, science fiction TV shows where everything had to reset at the end of the week. It's not like that. No, in a book you don't there, have to do that. There are various things along the course of Torchship that you know, are warnings that things are happening at higher levels. Uh, that there's a storm coming, and uh, that storm breaks in the second book. Oh, boy, this is going to be great. <laughs> no, we're looking forward to that. And to the audiobook. Carl and Laura Gallagher, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Event Horizon. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 135 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 7th, 2016, with your hosts, Susan L. Fox and Gene Turnbow. Our guests this evening have been Carl Gallagher, author of Torch Ship, and his wife and editor, Laura Gallagher, the producer of the audiobook of Torch Ship. This episode will air again on May 8th, 2016 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday and the following Saturday. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on KryptonRadio.com on the Event Horizon show page and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at KatCarter at KryptonRadio.com. If you would like to be a patron of the Geeky Arts, and we strongly suggest that you do, you can do so for as little as $1 to $5 a month. Please visit 
patreon.com slash Krypton Radio to join the Krypton Radio family of listeners. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi. For your Wi-Fi. <laughs>